Welcome to the latest episode of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast that discusses and examines the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. Joining me today is an experienced podcaster who hasn't been on this particular podcast before. In terms of that, there's also another first here. If you were to actually search for his name in Grand Comics Database or Comixology or some of the other comic creator sites, you would actually find him because Mr. Ben Avery is a published comics writer. Thank you for joining us here, Ben. Hi, thanks for for having me. I am looking forward to this. As am I. Today we are looking at story number 61, which is the Silver Surfer parable story, which originally just had the the cover title of Silver Surfer in a two-issue story, written by Stan Lee, with pencils, inks, and letters by Jean Mobius Girard. And my French accent may be weak. I apologize. My French teachers were also (laughs) English first language. Colored by John Wellington and edited by Archie Goodwin. The cover dates were January 1988, or sorry, December 1988 and January 1989. And the release dates were August 9th, 1988 and September 13th, 1988. So that's one of the biggest gaps between the cover dates and release dates that we've got on the list. Some of that is because this was Marvel's epic imprint, which was Marvel's first stab at hosting creator-owned stories that went from 1982 under Jim Shooter into the 90s that allowed them to also skirt the Comics Code Authority so they could do things that they couldn't publish as they do with the Max line these days, even though there's not a whole lot of Max books on the market. And this was a chance for Stan Lee and Mobius, as he's best known, to comic fans and, I suppose, Quentin Tarantino fans, thanks to Crimson Tide. (laughs) And uh, yeah, I know Quentin Tarantino's name does not appear in the credits. His rewrite of that script was uncredited because he felt he had a certain brand and putting his name on it would hurt the film because it would drive away the intended audience and it would disappoint the audience that did show up expecting something like Tarantino's other work. Because he had nothing in common. Apparently he's done that a few times, so he is kind of concerned about his brand. But in any event, that epic imprint, it did survive a while. It's put it kind of off to the side a little bit in the Marvel Universe, and it meant that you had a wide gap between release dates and cover dates because the release dates, and the, or sorry, the cover dates on a comic book were originally intended as sort of the best before date. So before the collectibles market really kicked in, the idea was you only leave the books on the shelves until that cover date is there. And that's where that like color-coded rectangle on some of your old comics came from too. Is That was a nice visual reminder for the, the person owning the store you know, oh, hey, I need to get all the pink ones off now. Cause yeah. At least that's the way I understand that, that it worked, is that you had these blue blue rectangles, pink rectangles, and, and yellow, and all those colors, and that was just a color a color guide for the, the store owners. Yeah, and like I said, it, it was there just to you know sell it by then. Epic was a little bit longer because Marvel's profit margins were narrower, so they figured if they could sort of entice the retailers to leave them on the shelves longer, then they might be able to make a greater return. I believe for a while they did eventually say that in order to have like a returnable issue, the cover date had to have expired. But then the collectibles market hit, so now a lot of stories such as this one, if it was still on the shelf, they just bag it, board it, and increase the cover price instead. Yes. For for good or for ill, yes. All right, so with the technical details out of the way, we'll move into a promotion, a little promo spot for one of Ben's other podcasts. And actually, before we do that, Ben, why don't you just tell people what all of your podcasts are and where they can find them? Sure. Uh, There's three main ones, and one of them is uh, Strangers and Aliens. It's about faith and science fiction and that kind of thing, strangersandaliens.com. The other one is Welcome to Level 7. That's about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Marvel Cinematic Universe at welcometolevel7.com. You need to spell out the 7, though, for any of our our things except for Twitter, because with Twitter, we don't want to spell out the 7, because that takes up six extra characters or five extra characters on your your tweet but then there's comic book time machine which is comicbooktimemachine.com which is really a lot more in in line with the spirit of of what you're doing here which is just us going back in time to reread old comic books that we love or don't love but it's it's that that trip back in time that nostalgia that you get back when you are just reading old comics or, or new i guess we did go back in time one week once uh, to, to review a fairly new Star Wars comic. But yeah, those are those are my three main podcasts that I am involved in. Listen to this promo for the comic book Time Machine, and then we'll be back to discuss this pair of issues. 
Guys, we finally developed our time machine. Should we use it to go back and see how Stonehenge was built? Or become friends with Hitler and convince him to stay in art school. Or we could go back in time and get the comic books we missed. Yeah! Yeah! The Comic Book Time Machine. A journey back in time to explore comic books. Good and bad. Whether from seven decades ago or seven days ago. Join our journey at comicbooktimemachine.com. And we're back. So as we've heard before, different stories seem to make it to the list for different reasons. Some of them are on the list because they're just pure entertainment value. Some of them are on the list because they've got, you know, the first appearance of this character or the death of that character or this wedding or some other continuity changing event. And some of them seem to be making it onto the list because, you know, they force you to think and have sort of a message and a meaning behind them. This is not one of the issues that's on the list just because so-and-so shows up for the first time. (laughs) There are, I think in this entire story, I would say it really boils down to four primary characters. We've got the Silver Surfer, Mm -hmm. who has appeared before and after this multiple times, Galactus, before and after this multiple times, and the Caldwells, Colton and Elena. Mm -hmm. Colton being one of those evangelists that you see so not necessarily a respected member of the clergy, one of the guys who's out there. He's he's a televangelist, yeah. Yeah, he's one of those ones, you know, he's trying to spread a message as he interprets it. And the way he's handled, he's not one of the ones that give the rest a bad name going out there just to line his own pockets with cash or anything. He does seem to genuinely believe that which he preaches. And then Elena is his sister, who doesn't necessarily see things the same way that he does. And that's... Those are actually the main conflicts, I would say, are between Silver Surfer and Galactus and between Caldwell and Elena. And there's a little bit between the, the Surfer and Colton Caldwell. Yeah, and, and later on a little bit between Caldwell and, and Galactus as well, I think. Not directly, but that's a major part of his, his arc, Cal- Caldwell's arc, is his relationship with his deity, so to speak. Yeah, and that's a lot of it. It so the, the two main conflicts, I would say, are between Surfer and Galactus and the, the Caldwells. And I think that's a lot of what they're they're getting into in this. You really have the humans interacting with each other, the mm-hmm. non-humans interacting with each other, and pretty minimal interaction between the non-humans and any significant human character for most of the story. But they do come into some yeah. contact, but a lot of it, it's you know, they are treated as though, in some ways, they're on just two completely different levels and don't notice each other. Yeah, they affect each other's stories without doing too much, like you said, interaction. Or there's some conversation, some, but it's... It's these parallel stories that kind of nudge each other a little bit and, and tap into each other a little bit. Yeah, the influences that they have on each other, they're less direct interaction. For what I'd say about half the influences are direct interaction, and at least half, maybe a little bit more than half, are more like the human pushes a domino here, and eight dominoes later, the others notice. Yeah, I think indirect interaction is a good way to put it. You know, when you're making the yeah the say it's indir- it's it's direct interaction between Silver Surfer and Galactus, definitely. And then those pesky humans do something that, that kind of causes someone to, you know, so, well, Silver Surfer, really, to uh, to want to act. But it is, yeah, domino, an indirect consequence. I, I like that that phrasing. Yeah, it's, if anything, I'd say the biggest impact, well, we can get to the impact of the story, you probably should do a plot synopsis first. <laughs> the basic plot synopsis is that the Surfer, at least at the time of this publication, seems to be free to leave Earth, but has chosen not to. So I don't know if this is intended to be set before the one shot where he was able to free Earth that was published about five or six years sooner, or they just chose to ignore that aspect for the sake of telling this particular story. But he's living on Earth almost in the guise of a homeless person on the streets. And in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. he is a homeless person. He's just, you know, got himself wrapped in the rags and stuff, not so much for heat because the surfer doesn't need it, but I suspect more to blend in so he doesn't draw too much attention to himself. And Galactus returns. The surfer confronts him, saying, hey, you promised to leave. And Galactus said, no, I promised not to threaten or attack. I'm just standing here. (laughs) And his mere presence is enough to cause this chain reaction where some humans humans start treating Galactus as their deity. And uh, Colton Caldwell is one of the biggest proponents of him and is essentially leading the Church of Galactus. It causes a lot of strife and conflict as people who are devoted to particular faiths and who also lack tolerance for other faiths, tend to do. And the surfer is forced to step up and intervene to save humans almost in spite of themselves, as he puts it. Mm-hmm. Because he is cast in the role of the devil, which is a complete turnaround from 
his first solo series and the way they introduced Mephisto. But in the course of events, when innocent human lives, particularly Elena Caldwell's, are threatened and the surfer intervenes to save her life, that's the wake-up call that the people need to realize, oh, we should not be worshipping the big purple guy. We should be worshipping the shiny naked guy. <laughs> you know, he's called on to be the deity and he says things he doesn't believe deliberately to put people off of, of worshipping him and just redirect that worship. And actually, ironically, Colton Caldwell, who was so wrong about Galactus, is the only guy who clues in to what the surfer is actually up to. Yeah, he's the only one who's right about Silver Surfer. He's... I. There's so much about this story that I just really, really enjoy. And the ending is one one big thing. Galactus's plan is another big, big thing. There's really not much plot to this. The plot is Galactus lands on Earth and stands there while Silver Surfer tries to convince the rest of the world, don't worship him, he's going to destroy you. And Galactus is like, I'm not going to I'm not going to destroy anyone because they're going to do it for me. And then I can eat and... <laughs> And I'll keep my promise. I'm not going to attack them. Yeah, it's, it's right up there with that Facebook meme. I'm not saying we should kill the stupid people. I'm just saying we should take the warning labels off of all of our products and let the problem take care of itself. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's absurd on some levels. It's unrealistic on other levels. But it also just makes its own kind of sense. It just, yeah. yeah the way humans react to both characters is way more believable and plausible than the idea of a shiny naked guy fighting a giant purple guy <laughs> in mini shorts yeah over the, yeah. the streets of manhattan <laughs> no he is wearing pants in this though right uh yeah i think at this point they had decided to put pants on him his first couple appearances in fantastic four he's still in the shorts or actually a skirt they just kind of it, it was a minor redesign to the character it's like they just decided to fix it with coloring that's not skin tone that's purple too done yeah it, it's a simple plot, but it's a deep story, I think. And and in a lot of ways, it's that classic invasion type of story. It's that the day the Earth stood still kind of thing. I, I had a kind of flashbacks to some of that, um, more realistic in some ways than the day the Earth stood still. Less yeah. realistic in many other ways, but... Yeah, uh, it's it, it could be that. I actually found it a little more in parallel to V. Because, I mean, in day the Earth stood still, the aliens yes, yeah. are treated as a threat when they're not. Whereas mm -hmm. V... By and large, the aliens are accepted, and there is some debate about it, but they should not be accepted because the vast majority of them are there to eat us. <laughs> well, and it's also, um, you say they, they're re reacting to, you know, V, reacting the wrong way. To each character here, Galactus and Silver Surfer, they're reacting in the opposite way that the truth would have them react. You know, Silver Surfer is not a threat, but they are attacking him. Galactus obviously is a threat, but they're, you know, some, in some cases, really worshipping him, and... In other cases, they're just ignoring the problem, you know, and saying, well, you know, it's there, but um, but no one's doing anything except for one person, obviously Silver Surfer. He's the one with the with the logo on the on the front cover. Yep. Yes, he is. And this, <laughs> I actually should have checked the timelines before we started recording. This is at or near the time that the Silver Surfer got his own ongoing. And I think in terms of the impact of the industry, that's one of the two things that happened. One is that Mobius worked for a major publisher. Mm -hmm. And he is, if you've seen his work, you know why he is so respected and why he was so popular. But most of the popularity was in his home continent of Europe, where there's less of a need for artists to work for the major companies on licensed products that they don't actually own in order to make a living. That's, I think, one of the cases there. So Mobius has great work. And part of me suspects, just looking at the content, there's no reason that this could not have the Comics Code Authority stamp on it. I wonder if it was published as an epic imprint rather than under the primary Marvel imprint for the sole purpose of giving Mobius a contract that gave him page rates that he was used to. I just keep hmm. it competitive in that regard because I see no other reason to release that, release this under that imprint rather than say Marvel graphic novels as one complete story or even just a two issue miniseries. I wonder if one reason though might be prestige to maybe bring prestige to the epic imprint. I'm not sure how well known Mobius was as an artist in 1989. I wasn't paying any attention in 1989 to really any artist. Todd McFarlane was only a name that I knew about because my friend mentioned that name often. <laughs> I read books because of who the characters were. Silver Surfer wasn't on my radar either, um, other than, oh, he's that naked guy. You know, him and Submariner together, like it just didn't really feel the need or desire to, to read. Yeah. 
based on their costume alone. Just, well, just, but then, you know, as I got to know Silver Surfer a little bit better. I didn't know I knew Mobius, honestly, uh, until years, years down the line, where I was like, oh, I've seen his work in movies. Oh, I've, I've seen his, um, his style show up in, in, you know, European type comics and that kind of thing. And, but I wonder though, if, if they were saying, you know, we got Mo- Mobius, who is an international artistic superstar to do a Marvel comic. So let's, let's give Epic the art. I mean, the idea behind Epic is that we're getting people who are great at what they do. Let's get Mobius. Let's put him in Epic and it's going to appeal to that older audience, appeal to that more mature reader than just a, a silver surfer under the Marvel imprint, which is the, you know, the superheroes. This is not just a superhero story. This is something a little deeper and there's not as much, there's some action, but there's not a lot of it. And what, it, what action there is comes with a lot of heavy dialogue uh, about why they're doing what they're doing. Why am I trying to stomp on you? You know, why am I going ahead and, and chasing you like a mosquito? Yeah, that's entirely possible. It may even be as simple as Mobius wanting the higher page quality that they had on the Epic imprint. <laughs> that's true too. <laughs> that's certainly an option. I, I have no idea how well known he was because at the time I started grade six between the publication dates of these two issues. So it was right around that time. I wasn't reading credits. I was looking at the characters, especially mm-hmm. those on the cover. So at that point, I think the only comic I was even regularly reading was G.I. Joe, which certainly licensed, but definitely not a lot of Marvel overlap. Most of what I knew about about that the comic book characters at that point would have been DC, and a lot of that would have come from Super Friends and the Chris Reeves Superman movies. Yeah. It's, I hadn't even gotten into the Marvel stuff yet. That would come with uh, New Mutants and Classic X-Men the following year. I, I do know, and this is based on some of the extra stuff that's in the graphic novel edition that I have that collects this with another Silver Surfer story. Um, Mobius was a headliner. They did a, an article about three things from Silver Surfer that will be coming out in that year in, in Marvel Age. And one of those things was this this Mobius epic, you know, duology miniseries. And they're talking about how, you know, we, we got this guy, you know, he's he's a legend of, of one continent. And then Stan Lee is a legend of another continent. And we're bringing them together, you know, for the first time. And uh, Stan Lee talks about how he's a fan of Mobius and all that kind of thing. And so, yeah, I, I don't know then, other than they brought in this European artist to do this Silver Surfer book, you know, what kind of impact it had on the industry, except to say they really seem to think that it had an impact on something because they were, they really wanted to bring him in. I do also, though, wonder, I look at it now and reading it now, I've read so many different styles of art, you know, over time from manga to European comics to, you know, different things, influences of both on American comics. I wonder in 1989, how many people picked these up and just looked at it and was, what is this? Because it's, it is very different than your typical fare. Like you and I would have been reading based on, oh, if Spider-Man's on the cover, I might buy that. Even though I don't care about Iron Man, I'm going to buy it anyway, you know? So I, I'm, I'm curious how much of an effect it had on the readers too at that time. That, that's, I just, I couldn't say I wasn't a part of that. And this isn't one of the, <laughs> me, the, the eras where, <laughs> You can look at it and say, well, there's a clear before and after. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's sometimes, I wasn't alive in the 1960s, but if I read my entire comic collection in sequence and go through a dozen or so of DC's Showcase Presents volumes and then hit Fantastic Four number one, as a reader today, having read them in sequence, I have no problems understanding why Fantastic Four number one hit so big with the audience that actually took that risk and picked it up. This one, I think, you know, I don't know if Mobius was as much of a landmark but he's definitely one of the contributing factors, right? So it's not like, you know, with DC, you can point to Crisis on Infinite Earths had a big impact. You know, mm-hmm. Dark Knight Returns had a huge impact on Batman himself. This, I think, is a piece of the puzzle where, you know, it was published, it was respected, it was financially successful, and let the publishers know, we can take more risks along this line, and they will be accepted. So I think, if anything, it may have had an impact on the diversity of what we see in print. Yeah, well, yeah, because like I said, you look at this now, it's not going to really jar you at all because you've been exposed to a lot of diversity in in a lot of, I mean, just on the monthly shelf of regular monthly issues of regular comics, there's a ton of diversity there. Not as much as some would like, but... You could pick pick up one extra-sized issue by Brian Michael Bendis and find 15 different artists more diverse than (laughs) this. That is true. That is true. (laughs) So the other question I had, and this comes from... Just again, ignorance, I guess, is 
I don't think or I don't know if this was intended to be a part of canon or a part of continuity because there are no other superhero characters even mentioned. There's just Galactus comes and they refer to conflicts they've had in the past. Part of me wonders, is this in the not so distant future? And and the, those other heroes are just gone and Silver Surfer is still just around because the, the style of uh, fashion does not fit the 80s. It feels almost in some ways like if you were to take maybe some of the 50s styles of fashion and merge it with Kryptonian fashion. Because, <laughs> you know, you're especially uh, you're the pastor here. I mean, he and his people, they have very different clothing, um, almost robes with, with symbols on them, you know, to to give you that idea of, of this kind of weird clergy that's rising up around Galactus. Your people, I guess some of the regular people do look like they could be, you know, 80s hairstyles and, and clothing. The technology is definitely not futuristic, but I still, maybe it's just because of Mobius in general. I just look at it and think future because I'm, when I think of him, I think of weird futures or, or, uh, you know, alternate styles. I haven't read too much of his, like his Westerns or anything like that. Yeah. But, I just, uh, there's no other heroes at all. And you'd think if Galactus was just standing there, there'd at least be a couple of them coming around and saying, hey, uh, Surfer, we couldn't help but notice that your uh, your old boss is here and yeah, you, you need any help? We got your back, man, if you if you need help. Yeah, or even get that, the lip service of, you know, we tried contact the Fantastic Four, but they're in the negative zone. We tried contacting the Avengers, mm-hmm. but they're off planet. Like, you'll see a few stories where they have major events and they just... So, yeah, we tried calling in reinforcements that aren't normally in this book, but they're still not going to be in this book, just to, to get that ground well, established. And, and, yeah, in the collected edition I have, there's another graphic novel in there where a, an alien comes, takes over the Earth, and takes two pages and, and completely dominates all the Marvel superheroes that are on Earth so that Silver Surfer can be the hero. You know, but they take two pages to, to have him completely, you know, overpower them and, and, and imprison them, and then he imprisons the whole entire Earth. But, um... You know, they they take care of that that question in there, but it's that that it's that same kind of question, like, well, in Iron Man three, where's the rest of the Avengers? You know, where's where's the other heroes when you need it? And so I wonder if this is meant to be out of continuity, or if it's meant to be kind of its own continuity, where it's this is just a Silver Surfer story in a world where the only superhero is Silver Surfer, and that's kind of the way I end up reading this whenever I've come back to it, and I've re- reread this a few times since I, I bought it the first time. But I, I'm wondering if that's that's where this is coming from. It's just its own thing. It's Mobius. It's Stan Lee. They can do whatever they want because of who they are. Yeah, and at this point in his career, I I would honestly be shocked to find out that Stan Lee was reading most of the monthly books. <laughs> I I just don't think he really knew what was going on in continuity. And I think you've even heard him comment that even though his stories had a lot of continuity, that was it wasn't so much about you know the fact that he really values continuity. As was the fact that he knew audiences accepted it, and given how incredibly overworked he was in the 60s, mm-hmm. being able to say, oh yeah, bring so-and-so back from issue 12, and you know, explain why he's not actually dead like we said he was, so we don't get as many angry letters. It was just like a <laughs> shortcut for him to produce that volume without going yeah. nuts. You know, the same reason they lean so heavily on what's called the Marvel Method, which existed prior to Marvel Comics. Yeah. But this, I think, uh, is uh, it makes this book something I can recommend to someone who's not a comic book reader necessarily or someone who doesn't know Silver Surfer because you don't need all that backstory. You don't need to know anything else about the Marvel Universe. You don't need to know about 1989 in Marvel Comics. You don't need to know about 1979 in Marvel Comics. You need, you might want a vague awareness of who Silver Surfer is before jumping into this, but uh, it, it's it's kind of a, a story onto its own, and, and that's something I really appreciate when I read a comic book or a graphic novel like like this where you can just read it and enjoy it for what it is. Yeah, at this point, I would all you I would really recommend reading beforehand is the Galactus trilogy. Mm-hmm. Now, because we chose to do this in a countdown, we're actually going to be reading that later on because those issues of Fantastic Four do show up as story number twenty three on this countdown. I better show up on this countdown. <laughs> yeah, but when you're reading it, I would say that yeah, all you need to know is who the Silver Surfer is, who Galactus is, and the fact that Galactus made that promise not to come and threaten it. And even then, mm-hmm. I don't even know if that's necessary because it's Galactus shows up and Silver Surfer goes, you know, hey, your formal herald here, you said you wouldn't come back. And Galactus is going, I didn't say I wouldn't come back. I said I wouldn't do this. And I'm going to sit here on a technicality and just watch this planet destroy itself. And then I'll chow down. And I think the implication is enough for you to enjoy the story. I think you enjoy the story more 
if you would do like you did or like you just said and, and read some of those other things. But I think it's enough uh, to, to enjoy this on its own merit. Yeah, I would have no problems handing this to someone. Well, actually, it's I'm reading it on Marvel Digital Unlimited, but okay. I would have no problems recommending someone read it. And all they would need to know is these characters existed before the story started. And this essentially recaps everything you need to know about them prior to that. Mm -hmm. If you're even remotely aware of, of superheroes in general, you know, there's some people that have a whole lot of power. And this is showing what that does. <laughs> and I'm, I'm mostly sure that this even predates the uh, Action Comics Weekly run over at DC, where people started worshipping Superman just because of the level of power and the things he can do. Right? It, it's a similar concept, although I prefer the way it's handled here to the way it was handled in that Action Comics Weekly. And I've never read that arc. I actually wasn't even aware of that. That's something That's something that sounds really interesting. <laughs> Not to derail the conversation, but I'm going to have to write that down. All right, back to Silver Surfer, though. Although Silver Surfer and Superman, I, I like the characters for similar reasons, I think, because they are both aliens come to Earth to protect the Earth and both take on a messiah type of role in, in some of their stories. Yeah, one of the things I like about both of them is they have the power to destroy a planet, should they so choose, but neither one of them is almost even capable of comprehending why anyone would want to make that choice. Yes, yes. And yeah, and, and that's why I like Superman, is not because of all his powers, but because of what you just said. When Whenever that Superman-Batman conflict comes up, I still, I still rest on Superman. Again, going back to Silver Surfer, that's one of the things that attract me to Silver Surfer, is, is just, especially in that initial run with, with Stan Lee, where he's kind of the, you know, he's the space Jesus, I guess you could call him in, in some ways. But he, you know, he he does a lot of navel gazing and he does a lot of philosophizing and he does all this kind of thing in the middle of superhero heroics, you know. But I, when Stan Lee is writing Silver Surfer, there's just something different about his writing to me that is just, I, I don't I don't know how to explain it even. I feel like he's able to do things that he doesn't give himself permission to do with other characters, maybe. I, I don't know, but it, explore ideas about humanity and humanism and even, in, like in this case, you know, religion and and, uh, and faith and, and all that kind of thing. I, I, I don't know. There's just something different about a Stan Lee Silver Surfer story than a Stan Lee, say, Fantastic Four or Spider-Man story to me. It might be a, a different kind of ownership of the character in his mind that he feels a different connection to it or that he likes that it's a different type of character with that space hippie kind of thing. I don't know. It could be. I mean, Stanley has always loved the, the heroes with the feet of clay. As mm -hmm. they say, he likes them with vulnerabilities and witnesses and weaknesses. With Silver Surfer, there are no physical vulnerabilities. So it feels like he used that opportunity to develop almost a, a philosophical and psychological one. He doesn't mesh on this planet, but he's a very good guy. They made him a very sympathetic villain when he was introduced, became a hero. Mm -hmm. and Again, like Superman, he seems to become the hero out of a sense of responsibility. So, I mean, Spider-Man became a hero through a sense of responsibility after the loss of Uncle Ben. When he got his powers, he was, you know, his immediate instinct was cha-ching, lost Uncle Ben, and then there's the with great power comes great responsibility message sank in, and he changed his attitudes. But with Superman and Silver Surfer, both of the time, both of those characters give me the impression that they would love to live in an ideal world where they could just lead normal lives and wouldn't have to be out there as the hero. But their desire to do that is less and pales in comparison to their inability to just stand by and watch innocents be harmed when they know they can do something about it. Yeah. So it's almost a compulsion to intervene and help people, which is exactly what we're seeing for the surfer here. Yeah. And I see in Silver Surfer, I, I see even a little more depth than in Superman because with Silver Surfer, there's actually that little, a little bit of tug, push and pull of he made a deal with Galactus, yes, to save his people, but he made a deal to serve this guy. I mean, he compromised. You know, I'm I'm going to serve him. I'm going to do my best to make sure he doesn't hurt anyone else, and it's going to save my people and and my my lady love and all that kind of thing. But his being removed from his world, unlike Superman's being removed from his world, is was his choice. It was mm -hmm. you know it was something he did that he had to do. You could say he had no choice, or he could say maybe. He would say, I had no choice, but he did. You know, he had the choice. Yeah. As JMS says, people say, I had no choice when they're really looking for a way to justify the choice they've already made. Mm -hmm. And so with, with Silver Surfer, it's him. I mean, he could have gone off and just, you know, led Galactus to another planet and said, eat him. You know, but instead he's, he's trying, you know, he's trying not to let people die. He's trying not to let people get hurt. He now finds himself with more power and, and what does he do with it? And, and like you said, in this issue right here, he doesn't want to act. He's actually sleeping 
when when Galactus comes. He's sleeping on the street in, in an alley, and he's not waking up. And it's not until people are you know really going crazy that, they, that he starts to wake up. And he doesn't want to do anything, but he can't help himself. He can't help himself. He sees them destroying themselves, and he says, "I've I've got to do something. I've got to do something." And I, I don't know if how well we we aren't getting into the deeper meanings yet, but um, that feeds into that that deeper meaning. Yeah, very much so. And that that is something with Silver Surfer that was absolutely true of him at the time this was published. Um, they did retcon some of that. So if you go back into the, the series that launched after this, uh, with I believe it was Ron Friends and Ron Lim that launched it and Jim Starlin. So the, the Silver Surfer series that was running through the Infinity Trilogy and whatnot. In that one, they retconned the history so that you know when he volunteered to be the Herald of Galactus, he was going to consciously choose to avoid any planets with sentient life. Mm-hmm. And Galactus basically rewrote it to eliminate his conscious and sense of guilt so ah, that okay. he was a different person and couldn't make that choice. That is a retcon, so it was added, what, about 30 years or so after the character was first introduced? 25 to 30 years, somewhere in that range? But that element hadn't been published or written at the time that this was published. That did come later. So that that is an issue. And that's one of the reasons I like the, the Silver Surfer a little bit more is because they added that to his backstory to say, no, 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 Galactus took away that piece of your free will and made you incapable of feeling what you would have been feeling. So once he was freed and that came back, that was actually a big story arc is how he was going to deal with the penance for the things that he did as Herald of Galactus now that he could feel them. Okay. Another one to track down. That's I want to just touch on my own personal history. I've said before, I'm reading in a Marvel Digital Unlimited, that's actually the only way I've read this. When... Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer came out. Gitcorp released another DVD-ROM with every issue of Silver Surfer and Fantastic Four to date. Oh, okay. And I've read everything on that. It wasn't until later I found out this even existed, and I wonder if the fact that it was published under the Epic imprint rather than the main Marvel imprint was the reason it was omitted from that DVD. Because they had everything else. They had the one-shot. They had his ongoings. So anything that just had the cover title Silver Surfer as this did was in there except for these two issues. Hmm. So it makes me wonder if it is the Epic imprint that got in the way on that one, or if perhaps they just missed it. But that, which is possible too. Yeah. <laughs> That's entirely possible. <laughs> I learned about it later, but I actually read it for the first time in preparation for this podcast and was very pleasantly surprised. Oh, really? That's cool. Yeah, because I I bought this when it came out. It was in 2012. I just checked actually the, the copyright date, but and it was just it looked cool, and I I thought, well, okay, there it says Lee. And Mobius, and I had heard of Mobius doing this, I think. I think I was aware of it from, like, lists in, like, Wizard Magazine or something like that. But And so I, I snatched it right away. Uh, I paid for it. When I, when I say snatched it, I snatched it off the shelf, paid for it, and then read it. And it's one that I, I've gone back to probably once or t- once or twice a year since since it came out, since I, I purchased that the graphic novel in, in 2012. One reason why I bought it, though, was because, like I said, Stan Lee writing Silver Surfer is just a special character to me. And I don't really have, have any good reason for him to be special other than it just it's different to me. I mean, I didn't read it as a kid. I wasn't interested in Silver Surfer as a kid. But I had the uh, the Silver Surfer Essential, black and white, that I just loved when that came out. Uh, and then I had the Fantastic Four Essential that had, you know, the that, that original trilogy. Was it 40, 48, 49, and 50 of Fantastic Four? Yep, those are the ones. And so that really is my, my background with Silver Surfer. I, I will throw in one extra thing is the Silver Surfer cartoon. I have not watched it since it came out. It was, I don't think, too well animated. It was a little bit heavy-handed. And it kept, I mean, he was really, really navel-gazing in there. And, and just however many times he said, Salabal in that, that cartoon series. But I enjoyed the Silver Surfer cartoon series. Um, now, that would have been, I think I just graduated college when that came out. If I'm remembering right, it was round in there, though, end of my college years. But yeah, I, I like the character of Silver Surfer as a concept more than as a, in continuity, I guess. And I think that's another reason why that essential edition, I love it because it's just Stan Lee doing Silver Surfer and just having fun with it, I think. And then I really like this because it's that standalone kind of, you know, we can take it, you can read it and not worry about what else is going on. It's just a good story on its own. And it's not going to go anywhere afterward. You know, it's not like there's a cliffhanger or anything like that. Um, there kind of is. It's a classic Silver Surfer cliffhanger where he is on his surfboard, looking down at the earth and feeling really alone. You know, that's that's your cliffhanger. Is he ever going to not be alone? Probably not. But <laughs> yeah, it's uh, I wouldn't say it's a cliffhanger, but it's definitely an ending that lets you know this story's over, but these characters will have more stories. Exactly. Exactly. 
the, the story opens and you know there were things that happened before. The story ends and you know the character is going to go on. Yeah, I, I, that's a that's a good way to put it. Um, it's an emotional cliffhanger. Is he ever going to feel better? <laughs> it is. And this is one I do expect once this podcast series is done and I've caught up on my reading and then have more time to read other things. This is one I will expect that I'll return to. And to me, one of the things that is required to get me back to reread anything, prose or comic form, is the expectation that I'll get something else out of it again. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's just, that was so much fun the first time, I expect it to be fun again the second time. But that will often taper off with each reading. But this is one that I think made it onto this list of the 75 greatest Marvel stories, not because of a compelling plot or because of exciting action sequences or because it had some sort of continuity significance when clearly we're not even sure if it even really belongs in continuity. <laughs> this is here because this is not popcorn disposable entertainment. Right? One of the aspects of this podcast that I stole from Mission Log is looking for messages, morals, and meanings and seeing if there's hidden layers to this. I'd say there are layers. I wouldn't say they're hidden. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> they're not hidden layers. It is right out there. It's not It's not quite as bad as, like, they're going to stop, preach a sermon, and then move on. It's almost, almost there. It comes close. Yeah, this isn't Saturday morning cartoon where the characters come out and say, you know, if this character <laughs> had just listened to his parents, everything would have been okay. Right. This is Stanley and Mobius. To me, it feels like they had things they wanted to say about the relationship between man and his god or gods, and they were just going to use these characters to discuss it. Mm-hmm. And that's what a lot of this is. There's a lot to be said about who people deify. And I think a lot of this, especially the rapid turnaround between Galactus and Silver Surfer, this feels like it was created by people who believe that people need deities to look up to and need these, you know, they, they it's almost like there's an in instinct to worship gods. And you have to be careful about who you direct that worship towards, right? Make a choice carefully. Pick the right one. Don't just pick the obvious and convenient one. Yeah. Or the biggest and most powerful one, because when Galactus comes, obviously he has power, and and that's what they're reacting to is that power. Now his 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 commandments. I'll see if I can find it here. But his his basic commandment, I, I can't find the exact quote, but is do what you want. <laughs> I give you freedom to do what you want. Go for it. And then people start beating each other up, and and that's the whole thing. Is you know I'm just going to stand here until humanity destroys itself because I'm hungry, but not that hungry. I can wait, and it. So it's it's an interesting thing. Obviously, this is not any human being, I think, with, well, not any human being. A lot of human beings would recognize this is a problematic theology. You know, to you can do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. Well, the things you do do matter. And it is interesting, though, because he's then got power. And that adds, I think, a level of credence and credibility to his his words. And so he's able to say, I speak with authority because I speak with power. Oh. Absolutely. I mean, this is one of the few Stanley comics where I read the comic and it reminds me that Stanley was a Jewish person who served in World War II against Hitler and the Axis powers. So he had either directly seen or was well aware of the atrocities committed against his people purportedly in the name of religion. Mm -hmm. I think Hitler's actions, I think that's one of the cases where, again, Religion and faith gets a bad name because people use it as an excuse to justify the atrocities that they've already decided they're going to commit and you know, are effectively deliberately misinterpreting their their holy text in order to justify what they're doing. But Stanley had seen that, and I think that that's coming through with the dangers of you know people who want something to be true to the point that they see it when it's not really there. And you know, to your point about Stan Lee. Um, there is one part where they're talking about the effects that Galactus's rule has on people. And that's when um, Elena, the sister, is defending Galactus and defending her brother to, to Silver Surfer. And she says, you know, Galactus is a god. We must obey. And Silver Surfer's response is obey, obey when children destroy their schools, obey precepts that turn brother against brother, that imprison the poor and the helpless. And that small little image, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, there's like nine panels on this page, one of the smallest ones I think is an intentional reference to the concentration camps from World War II. It's got this fence with barbed wire and a tower, a guard tower, and there's people standing behind the fence that are, you can't really, there's no clear detail to the people. They're just standing there, kind of their heads down, maybe shoulders slumped if there's any, even that much detail. But I, I do think that this is, I think, Stan Lee working out some of those ideas of why do people do evil things? And it comes down to, 
you know, why are they choosing to do things that would harm other people? And it's why do they use their freedoms and their free will to harm people? So I, I, uh, there, I, I didn't, I've never noticed this panel until this reread for this podcast where I was like, oh, that, that's, he's referencing concentration camps and, and the, the dialogue there that imprison the poor and the helpless. And yeah, this comic asks big questions. And I love that in my art. Um, I may not agree with some of the answers that art that asks big questions actually try to give you then afterward, but I love it when my art challenges me with questions. And when I'm able to say, huh, I hadn't thought of that, or that's an interesting way that they think of things, you know, or, or in some ways to be able to say, oh, that's why they believe that, or that's why they would, you know, do, you know, act like that. And this is a, this asks big questions. I think this is far more sophisticated writing in some ways than you usually get in a Stanley joint, so to speak, because it's, it's not subtle, but it's sophisticated. No. Yeah. This is Stanley when he's been told, take your time. Mobius can take his time with the <laughs> epic imprint. We could publish under whatever schedule you want, make it the finished product you want, which is very different from Stanley when they're saying, okay, you've got these eight or 12 books to crank out this month. Go. Yeah. And by the way, we've got next month. I mean, <laughs> we've kind of touched on this a little bit in other episodes, but in the 50s, a psychologist by the name of Frederick Wortham released The Seduction of the Innocent and blamed comic books for all the evils of the day's youth. Now, at the time, Stan Lee was paranoid about missing deadlines. So all of his creative teams on all of the books had worked six months in advance when the comic industry took a big hit. Not quite as big as the, the crash of the 1990s, but still pretty big. And when his publisher found out how much content they had filed away in drawers, he fired the entire staff except Stanley. And then six months down the road when they were running out of that stuff, he was given permission to rehire artists, but not writers, because that the things were still going on and they were barely surviving. Uh. So suddenly Stanley had to write every book in the line instead of just writing a select few and editing them. And the Marvel method became popular because that was his coping mechanism. He went through and sort of cherry-picked artists like your Jack Kirby's, like your Steve Ditko's, who understood storytelling on the page so well that he could give them a one or two page outline and say, okay, draw me 24 pages of that and make it a story and then throw dialogue bubbles on it at the end and it would actually work. Well, and that's why Stanley could be sometimes so wordy is because sometimes it didn't work. And so he had to, he had to make sure that you knew what was going on. And I think in a lot of ways, he was making sure you knew what was going on even when he didn't have to make sure, even when it was pretty clear what was going on. Yeah, I, there, there's some I picture him, you know, doing it at 6 p.m. on a Friday night going, what's going on? I can't focus. I'm so tired. What's, oh, that's what's happening. Okay. And then spelling it on all the detail he needed at the end of his work week when he was totally frazzled, as opposed to had he done the dialogue first thing on a Monday morning. Because there are some, some definite differences there. But now when we're getting into Epic, in a lot of ways, he was primarily a figurehead of Marvel. Mm -hmm. and moved more towards retirement and getting into other media, or at least trying to. I mean, I think this is right around the time he got his first on-screen appearance as an actor, as a member of the jury during Trial of the Incredible Hulk. That's right. That is around this time, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So he ended up, I think he was able to write this with all the time he could give it. And he was writing the more mature stories that he always wanted to do and had been pushing for, and had sort of helped the comics industry grow up by giving a new type of superhero comics. And he was in some ways doing that again here. He, he proved that philosophy on the page can work. Now, how well that worked in the long term, there are some people who know how to do that well. And there are some who, as far as I can tell, don't. So I'm not sure if we should go into detail on who's on which lists, because <laughs> at least when Stanley was writing this one, he knew what he was doing. He did. And I feel like maybe this is Stanley kind of at the height of his creative powers, too. Because, you know, this is, what, 30, 40 years you know, he's been, he's been doing this at this point and you learn, I mean, you spend any time in an art field and, and you, you're going to learn and, unless you allow yourself to just ride and, and just do what you've always done. And I do think that there are some points in Stanley's career where it was a job that he had to do. And so he's getting it done. Uh, this feels like it's him pushing the envelope a little bit and getting to work with an artist that he respects and admires and has never had a chance to work with and that has a unique style. And I do think that maybe that in, in the back of this, you can see some of the outline that Stan Lee had written where there'll be a page and it'll just be three sentences. It's like Galactus realizes his plan has failed. And so he leaves, you know, it's that kind of thing. 
I think that getting back the artwork from Mobius after his outline and seeing it in such a different and new style, I think might have also given him a little bit of a charge, too. I just feel like there's, on both Mobius and Stan Lee's part in this story, there's there's a personal connection on the page that Stan Lee always brings energy on the page, but this is energy and it's energy plus. There's, there's just a little extra. I'm, I'm not doing a very good job putting it into words, but it's it's there. There's just something je ne sais quoi to, to use French just because of Mobius. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is hard to pin down. I mean, reading it, the art's good, the dialogue's good, but if you were just give me one random page of the story and said, read that, I would not expect any given page. I couldn't look at that and say, oh, this whole entire package must be fantastic. I'd say, that's not bad. But somehow mm-hmm. the the finished product is greater than the sum of its parts. I mean, this is one that it will compel you to think about the roles or role of deities in human society and the way humans react to it, the way we deal with them, and what happens when people of very devout faith encounter a different set of people with very devout faith. I mean, there's times where, you know, they will say, oh, really? That's what you believe? Oh, neat. Not for me, but neat. Okay, well, carry on, which is what I prefer, but... You bring up the word intolerance, and it's here in spades. And what's what I find funny, and probably the only thing that takes me out of the page, when I'm reading the story, there's there's one phrase that I get to, and it just makes me chuckle just a little bit, takes me out of the story, and that's anti-God. Like, they're like, oh, you know, you're an anti-Semite, or you're an anti-Dentite, you know, whatever, from Seinfeld, but it's, oh, kill the anti-God! He's an anti-God! You know, and it's just kind of a... It's not a phrase I can imagine regular people... You know, coming up with and using uh it just it just feels a little awkward the, the the phrase itself the the sentiment is obvious and the sentiment works for me in the terms of these are people who you're against galactus well we're not and galactus said we can do whatever we want so we're going to do whatever we want and that's going to be you know shooting at you or you know punching you or hurting you or or whatever but that's that, just that little phrase kind of it, it just tickles me it doesn't rub me the wrong way but it tickles me the wrong way yeah, I can definitely see that. It is one I actually have heard anti-god outside of this. Well, but not as a noun. That's the <laughs> like anti-god as a adjective kind of works. But, yeah, but they're they're using it as a noun, and that's that's what kind of it, it's the phrase itself. The kind of the way they use it. It's okay, all right. I'll I'll go with that one because I have to. I think it's only say it two or three times, and it just gives me that little. Just that little tickle to the, the the bottom of my foot there as I'm reading. There's a there is a lot of meat though, and there's there's phrasing and, and terminology in here that also um, I'm reminded of you know scripture and and I don't I'm not going to preach okay I I am um, by night a comic book writer and by day a children's pastor so I I do preach sometimes but um, I'm I'm not going to right now I am going to say that there are definitely some parallels and reflections of of things that. I do, I do see in, in scripture, specifically Christianity. Um, I, I'm not familiar with, um, you know, the Book of Mormon and, and some of those other texts, but, um, you know, when Serva Surfer, they're, they're coming after him and he's saying, they do not know what they do. I mean, that's, I can't imagine Stanley not writing that without thinking about Christ on the cross saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Um, and Silver Surfer talks about how the greatest power is love. And, and that's again, the greatest gift is love. And, Oh, I lost that phrase there, but there's there's the idea where there, where there's life, there's hope, you know, and, and Silver Surfer's basically saying, you know, there's life, and so I'm going to fight for it. And there's just a lot of elements in here that do feel scriptural or biblical, and I don't, this is where I wondered, I can't remember if this was before we, we started recording or not, if this is accidental or not. I think it could be accidental, because it's Stan Lee trying to write with that Messiah type of of feel, and it could be the kind of thing that would come just from trying to to write this kind of thing Uh, the biggest thing i'm reminded of though is and this is getting to the character of silver surfer there's two phrases in here one is not a biblical kind of thing but the one phrase that kind of just encapsulates silver silver surfer's character is when he says it's not given us to know whether we'll succeed or not in failure there's no disgrace there can be but one ultimate shame the cowardice of not having tried and i love that as kind of a a mission statement for silver surfer or really for any superhero who's heroic you know, who I might lose, but I'm not going to be so cowardly as to not try. The other one that kind of gets back to this idea of getting to the Christ figure and the Messiah figure is, you know, all throughout the thing, Silver Surfer talks about he's coming to save a world that's turned against him. He's coming to save a world that doesn't want him. And then at the end, 
we talked about how the Reverend uh, Caldwell, he's the only one who recognizes that Silver Surfer is actually doing what's better for humans by telling them. Basically, they say, we want to we want to follow you now. We want you to be our God. And he says, sure, but you have to do everything I say. You can't second guess me. I'm going to take whatever I want. You're going to give me a third of everything you, you have. And if I ask you to come, you're going to come. You're not going to even think twice. And it's worse than Galactus. And so they turn against him. And this is where the Reverend character, he's, no, don't listen to him. He knows what he's doing. Don't listen to what he's saying. He's lying to us on purpose. Don't do it. And then he says, you could have been a god, but you threw it all away just for us. And then I love this last phrase here. The tragedy is we don't deserve it. We don't deserve you to throw all this away for us because we're rotten and, and you're not. You're pure. They talk about how he's pure and, and everything earlier on. And that kind of gets back to that idea of Christ becoming human and throwing away, you know, not deeming godhood as something to hold on to, but to come and to, to be, you know, the Messiah. And it just, I think it's accidental. I think it's Stan Lee writing a Messiah character. And that's why it works is because he's doing a good job writing a Messiah character and, and or, you know, that Christ figure that the Silver Surfer tends toward. And so then he's, you know, Silver Surfer's off alone looking at the earth and head hanging down and, and ta- you know, navel gazing literally at this point. You know, he's literally looking down at his belly button and thinking about how he'll, he'll be forever alone. But he's a hero. And that attracts me to the story as well. This is why beginning to end the whole way through, it's there's characters who do things that are believable. Your reverend character here, he is obviously a devout follower of Galactus because Galactus has power, but Galactus is devoid of love. And he realizes it. You actually get him to turn around and he's not just this terrible, you know, religious leader. He's a human who realizes, no, this isn't right. Galactus shouldn't do what he's doing. Because he let his sister die, and he realizes, ah, oh, and he turns against Galactus. And I, I like it. I like that our human characters do human things and act in human ways. I like that Galactus is this being beyond morality, and Silver Surfer is this being who can't avoid morality, who can't turn away from his morality. Uh, hopefully not preaching too much, more more my interpretation and, and uh, you know, my my perspective on on, on where I get uh, what I get out of a story like this, but yeah, so that's well. It's, yeah, speaking as an atheist myself, I did not come across as preachy. Okay, it was good. an informed opinion. <laughs> There's one other theme I wanted to bring up, and it's something that Silver Surfer says. You know, I can make a difference. I think I can make a difference. One man can make a difference. I I can't help but add two truisms truisms together here. The idea that one man can change the world, and the the idea. And he does, you know, but then also the idea that the more things change, the more they stay the same. And that's, that is a, a thing that kind of comes through from beginning to end here as well, is that Silver Surfer, he makes a stand, he makes a change, and everything's the same at the end, mostly. <laughs> yeah, it does kind of revert status quo for the world at large and for some of the individuals. I mean, this is an experience mm-hmm. they'll remember, which I, I think that's going to be the same about reading it. I don't know if there's much more we can go about about what this means. This is all about man's relationship with his god or gods. Uh-huh. So, you know, looking at why it probably landed at this point in the tournament, keep calling it a tournament because of Bureau 42 is other content. Why we, why it landed at this point in the countdown, if anything, I'd, I'd say that you could place this higher. This is one of those stories that you can hand to someone who says, like, there's a lot of people who will ridicule comic books and say, oh, they're for kids, they're not compelling. And usually when people are looking for stories to argue that point and to dispute it they're looking at your dark knight returns mm-hmm. watchmen mouse <laughs> yeah those they're classics and they deserve to be but a lot of them i mean watchmen and dark knight returns are not appropriate to hand to a six-year-old whereas this proved that you can push beyond children's entertainment without pushing into as far as the mpaa is concerned nc-17 territory mm-hmm. right there's nothing objectionable on this page and some people might question that you know this is examining deities that are not their personal deity i think they're being too sensitive because neither galactus nor silver surfer considers themselves to be gods in this i mean galactus knows full well the way people are reacting to him and he understands that he's manipulating it that's why he's doing it in the first place he's hoping they'll do this (laughs) yeah but he's uh you know in his case he's the man behind the curtain at in the emerald city of oz and hoping that people just look at that giant floating head yeah yeah that he's got set up, whereas Silver Surfer keeps saying, "No, no, no, not not me. I'm not your guy. Not me." That's what this is about. So this is 
I mean, if you were to turn this directly into a movie, the depending on how they depict those few action scenes will determine whether this goes to G or PG. Mm, I mean, this this has like that Avengers level of you know city destruction. So I, I think they could get it up to a PG thirteen without adding much. But that's just because of you know sci-fi peril, I guess is the word. Yeah, they, they certainly could push it higher than that. I mean, depending on how they depict the destruction, you could you know push it up to blood and guts everywhere. Mm-hmm. But you could accurately represent this story with no harsher than a PG rating. Yeah, you, absolutely. I, I could hand this to someone and say, you know, read this story and tell me that comics, the comic book genre, or not, sorry, the comic book medium, it's not a genre, read this story and tell me that the medium of comic books is incapable of asking big questions. I don't think you could read this and refute that any further. Yeah, this this does that in spades. This This definitely does. Overall, I really enjoy it. And like I said, I I, re- I return to it. So I think that's probably my, my highest praise that I can give it is that I, I reread it. It's not one of those that just sits on my shelf and looks pretty or goes in a box and doesn't look pretty at all because <laughs> it's hidden in a box. Yeah, I've got, as you said, I've got a complete run of Silver Surfer. I've also got In Thy Name. I've got Requiem. I've got most of his miniseries. With this, I've got them all. I would put this in Silver Surfer Requiem at as my top two Silver Surfer stories of all time. Hmm. I, I really enjoyed Requiem as well. This this goes at the top of the pile, though. My pile yeah. is not as big, but it's at the top. It's yeah. If I had to pick right this second, it probably would be at the top, but it's also a much more recent read. Okay. Yeah. If I give it a few months, come back and reread them, it very well still could be number one. I just At this point, I'm not willing to draw the line between one and two. But yeah, Requiem is it was very enjoyable, but one of the reasons I haven't gone back and reread it since it came out was just it wasn't it was kind of touching on some of the big questions, but not in the scale this was. So I don't mm-hmm. know how much more I would get out of a, a second read. Whereas this, I expect I will still be noticing things, not just because of the story, but because of the details of the Mobius art. Yeah, I'm sure I could be getting stuff out of this and you know being forced to think about things again that on the 10th reread. Now, I don't know what's available to you on Marvel Unlimited, but um, in this graphic novel that I have, it's a hardcover edition. It's really... Just a very pretty edition. It has that extra graphic novel in it, but it also has a bunch of pages written by Mobius called The Making of Silver Surfer. And it has sketches, page layouts that he's done, uh, talks about working with Stan Lee's story. And it is really a wonderful look behind the curtain as far as how Mobius works and the, and the kind of things that attracted him to this story and attracted him to to Stanley and doing American comics in the first place. Coloring, I was surprised that the coloring was such a big deal to him as far as the enjoy- enjoyment of working with with uh, Stanley on American comics. And then he even has a whole page about the lettering <laughs> that he did, which I think adds a lot to the page and adds a lot to the feel of, just the feel of the read. That is one thing that it's hand-lettered. It's obviously hand-lettered. It's hand-lettered by the artist, placed by the artist on the page. And it's... it's uh, it adds a lot. Um, that's one of the things as a comic book writer, I've also been able to work as a comic book letterer on some of my projects. And I really enjoy doing that, but I always feel bad placing things over artwork. You know, And, and for, for him to be the artist actually doing the placement and everything, the art and the lettering go hand in hand. And it's just, it's a really interesting, like I said, peek behind the curtain. I think it appears in not just this edition that I have from 2012, but I think it actually appears in the first edition that they printed when they were collected those two issues as like a, a hardcover or something like that. But it's it's cool. It's cool to get that artistic peek at, at his uh, work flow and, and at just what why he was enjoying himself and why he wasn't enjoying himself in some situations too. Yeah, and it's I haven't read those pages because when I'm doing these podcasts, I'm trying to simulate just reading exactly what's on the list and nothing else. But they do have a lot of this. They, these add up to 48 pages of story, plus the covers. Mm-hmm. And the way it's stored on Digital Unlimited, they don't have Silver Surfer Parable issues 1 and 2. They have Silver Surfer by Stanley and Mobius as a single unit that's 104 pages. Oh. So it's got the cover, it's got the content, it's got what are probably a lot of these pages that you're talking about. Front covers, some other art Mobius did for Marvel, including splashes of Elektra and Iron Man and Punisher, the thing. Yeah, Some of these other characters... That Spider-Man one is wonderful. I want a print of that. Yeah, it's got that, and then it's got about 18 pages of other Marvel trade paperbacks that you can go out and buy if you feel so inclined. Okay. (laughs) 
one of their chronologies. So I chose not to read them this time through just because of the way I want to do this podcast. But yeah, when it's all said and done and I revisit this because I know I'm going to revisit this, I will take the time to go through and read those pages. Yeah, I couldn't not read it. I just, oh man, it's it, it was really neat. Really, really neat. So when you do reread it, definitely keep going. I don't know about those last few pages you were talking about, but... Yeah, usually when I look at their list of trade paperbacks, it's more, which of these do I already have? Oh, wow, most of them. <laughs> Between Marvel Digital Unlimited and GitCorp's DVD-ROMs, I've been able to amass quite the Marvel collection. Yeah, Marvel Unlimited, oh man, that is just, it's one of the best things ever. I I, I feel bad that I let my subscription uh, run out, but and then I realized the stuff on Marvel Unlimited is stuff that I bought three months ago and haven't read yet, or five months ago and haven't read yet. Yeah, it's, they usually have a six-month six month delay is typical now. Well, my delay is far more than that. <laughs> it's just, why did I just buy that on paper? What am I yep. going to do with it now? Yeah, it's, I'm still buying the paper mostly to support my comic guy because Roy Kim at Thunderground and St. Albert has treated me extremely well over the years. I actually buy the, the print copies or buy them from him, use the Comixology digital download codes, and then mm -hmm. hand the print copies to a buddy of mine. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually looking through my collection and thinking, what can I give away now? Like, not sell. I'm not going to sell them on eBay. My collection isn't worth anything. It's stuff that I like. So it's stuff like this where I like this. That's why I bought it, you know? So did you have any closing thoughts on Parable we haven't gotten to yet? Not really. I think we kind of hit everything. Um, like I said, I, I really like it because it asks big questions, but it's also beautiful. I think that's something I think maybe I haven't really touched on. The artwork is wonderful. And f the story flow is, I, I find this to be a gorgeous, gorgeous story. Yeah. This is one that's very easy to recommend. And again, it this is one of the stories where I look at it going, only 61? You could argue that it's... <laughs> I find this both more compelling and more enjoyable than stories that, that have lower ranks in this countdown. I'll admit, though, when I saw this on your list, when you were asking for people you know who were interested in talking about things, I was surprised to see this on the list, honestly. Just because it is kind of this two-issue thing, it's kind of a blip. I did not realize that so many people had connected with it enough to make it, I mean, 75 years of comics is thousands and thousands of comics. And to make it into that 75 top list, I was surprised. But it's nice to know that I'm not alone in enjoying this. So, no, I, I think anyone who's ever asked themselves, is the faith I hold the correct faith for me, will find connecting to the story inevitable. And it wouldn't surprise me if those who haven't asked themselves that question would do so after reading this story. So when you say that you're surprised there's enough people that connected with it, I think it's... I I'm surprised that there's enough that read it. It's kind of like Next Wave in the sense that this is a great comic that didn't get a lot of visibility. And the only way it shows up on this list, to my mind, is if that small but devoted fan base voted for it almost universally. Yeah, yeah. E everyone who did read it is speaking up going, no, 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 this belongs on that list. Yeah, I... Because I picked it up on a lark. And this is the kind of thing, though, that if I had listened to your podcast and it was someone else talking about this issue or this i i would be really interested in going to buy it uh, just because of of the things that we've we've talked about that just re they resound it resounds to the human condition it's not just a story about one religion or another it's not a story about one superhero or a supervillain it it's a story that asks questions that if you're human you should be asking these questions you should be asking yourself why do i believe why do i follow is there a reason to stop following and stop believing and I, I think that the reason to stop is when you realize the falsehood of what you're following, like the, the Colton does. And it just, it's, it's a great story, a great story. And I think you and I are proof that it affects people in different ways who come from different backgrounds, but it definitely it's broad enough and big enough asking the questions that it, it can really affect uh, any reader. And that's, that's good art as well. Good art connects. That's, that's my, I didn't make this up, but art, the purpose of art is to connect. And this does that. This does that well. And I appreciate art that asks big questions and that causes me to ask questions about the things that I do and, and, and believe. And so that's, this works. It's, it's good. Okay. Well, that said, Ben, thank you for joining us. Thank you again for letting me, letting me come and talk. I, I'm, I enjoy your podcast, but now I enjoy it even more because I got to be on it. So <laughs> yeah. And you will be again. So uh, if you wouldn't mind just reminding the listeners where they can find your stuff? Yeah, you can find me at benavery.com. That's where you can find some of my comic books and that kind of thing that I've worked on. I've worked on a number of different 
types of things. So I might, I think there's a little something for everyone, maybe. But I also podcast, and my podcasts are Strangers and Aliens, which is at strangersandaliens.com. That's faith and sci-fi kind of conversations. Welcome to Level 7 is a podcast about Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Marvel Cinematic Universe. If it's Marvel Cinematic Universe, we're talking about it. Movies, Netflix, TV, uh, even the comic books that tie in. And then there is Comic Book Time Machine, comicbooktimemachine.com. I'm personally doing a read-through of Star Wars and the Marvel licensed sci-fi books that include, like, Human Fly... Um, I haven't gotten to it yet, but ROM, Micronauts, Battlestar Galactica, Doctor Who, anything Marvel published as a licensed book, starting with when Star Wars began in 77. I do actually go back a little bit to 2001 with Jack Kirby, because that stuff's bonkers. I love it. <laughs> I love it. For a lot of the same reasons I love this, actually. But it's just more bonkers and weird and funky. But anyway, um, that's comicbooktimemachine.com. And those are my three main podcasts. I do a podcast about the Ultraverse as well. I'm, I'm doing a read-through of Nightman. Uh, from the Ultraverse, but that's uh, ultra, ultraversenetwork.com. But yeah, that's that's a nutshell. It's a big nutshell, but that's me in a nutshell. Okay. So listeners, if you're reading along at home, uh, next week's is a five-issue story. It's the original Marvel Zombies miniseries, which has been collected as Marvel Zombies or Marvel Zombies Volume 1 in both trade paperback and hardcover editions. It's in the Marvel Zombies Omnibus edition. The individual issues are available in Comixology and on Marvel Digital Unlimited. Feel free to rate the show on iTunes or Stitcher, and to share the link with friends and family who you think may enjoy this the show. We also have the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels podcast forum up and running on Facebook, so you can come over and join that group and participate in the conversations when they happen there. I will also automatically post links to the show from there, so if you'd rather follow that way, you can do so. And Thank you for listening.